0: Welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're putting our sacred texts into conversation with the realities of these times, realities of racism and misogyny, homophobia and xenophobia, realities of domination, violence, and repression. In the midst of so much horror, how can our scriptures help us to show up, resist, and care for one another? It's important to say that this podcast is targeted toward anti-racist white people. White people challenging and supporting other white people as we take action to end racism and white supremacy, following the leadership of people of color. We welcome feedback from everyone and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Nicola Torbett, and I'm one of many lay leaders at First Congregational Church of Oakland in California. I'm also a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, and this podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. I started working on this episode last weekend, the 11th and 12th, and, like many of you probably, I had Nazis on my mind. Even as I sat with the text and read biblical commentaries and paced the back deck, I had one ear cocked for news out of D.C., out of Charlottesville. Would the far right and the alt-right gather again? Would there be tiki torches and chants of, you will not replace us? Would people be beaten? Would there be another DeAndre Harris or Heather Heyer? What should I, what should we be doing in this time? Be careful, then, how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil, says the writer of Ephesians. Sure, but what does it mean to make the most of the time? My worried mind flashes on my to-do list, toys with launching complex new projects, reviews the 15 rallies and protests that I could attend in the coming week if I did nothing else. But I don't think these frenetic imaginings are really faithful to the biblical concept of time and what it means to make the most of it. The scriptural concept of time seems quite a bit different than ours. There's chronos time and kairos time, and they overlap and intersect in mysterious ways. The writer of Ephesians goes on, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks, singing songs, being filled with the Spirit, These are not usually the things on my to-do list, and they don't often occur to me as, say, effective ways to fight fascism. But this week, I'm wondering. I can't say that the things I have tried have been all that effective, especially when I'm exhausted, depleted, and anxious. So maybe we should try it right now, this making the most of time. If you can, right where you are, Bring your attention to the present moment. Come into your body. Check in with your big toes, your earlobes, the back of your throat. Notice that you have a body that is right here in this moment. See if you can feel your heart beating. Now, from this place of presence, What are three things you want to give thanks for? Things that are present to you right now. Can you pray this from a place of real gratitude? Let's take a moment. Make the most of time because the days are evil. Truth is, even though there were few white nationalists in the streets last weekend, they are nevertheless holding their own. An article in The Atlantic last week claimed that they are actually winning, regardless of what is visible in the streets, because their ideas have infiltrated the mainstream, including the media, the White House, and the halls of Congress. So we have to fight the battle in the streets, yes, but there are so many other fronts, because white supremacy is not just audible in the chants of marchers in D.C., but it is also airing on Fox News, screening all over YouTube, and scrolling on Reddit and 4chan. That means it's readily available to the folks in our pews who may be susceptible to it. The question on my mind this week is how can we inoculate our people against these toxic messages and root them out where they have taken root? For this reason, I'm going to break a rule that we have for ourselves in these podcasts. In general, we want to guard against centering whiteness, which is after all centered just about everywhere, and make this a space where the lives of people of color are central. However, this week, I think we need to get serious about treating the soul sickness of white people. Because if we don't, more people of color, more people like Nia Wilson, like Hereth Augustus, are going to die. That said, if you want to take on this week's scripture that is steeped in the tradition of black resilience, I highly recommend Reverend lanice Pinkard's We Need the Funk. I'll link to that in the transcript of this episode. But for our purposes today, I want to talk about the living bread in John 6. I want to think with you about what that bread is, what it means that Jesus says he is the living bread, I want us to ask ourselves if the version of the bread we are offering in our churches is rich enough, chewy enough, dare I say fleshy enough, to fortify our people against the temptations of imperial bread, patriarchal, white supremacist, capitalist, heteronormative bread, which is on offer everywhere in these days. We have to fight fascism in the streets, yes. But we also have to fight it from the pulpit, and in the fellowship hall, and in our pastoral offices, and in every contact we make with every one of our white congregants. And I'm not sure anymore if it is enough just to preach against it. I think we need to offer a real alternative. Because when Wonder Bread is all there is to eat, people are going to eat it, no matter how poisonous it may be in the long term. My question for you is, does the church, the progressive church, have a meaningful alternative to offer? I'm indebted in my thinking about this week's podcast to a Facebook post by my friend Mark Van Steenwick. Mark's an interesting guy to follow. He's a white cis dude, and he was raised in a low-income white community in rural Minnesota. Mark became an evangelical Christian at Bible camp when he was 14, and in nearly every way he was groomed to become the kind of guy who might have carried a tiki torch in Charlottesville last year except his life took a different turn. The way he describes this is really worth reading, if you can. You can find it in the first part of his book, The Unkingdom of God. But in short, because Mark developed a real relationship with Jesus, he has turned into a self-described Christian anarchist, living in intentional community in Minneapolis, where he works to end white supremacy and heteronormativity. So like I said, He's an interesting guy to follow. Anyway, this week Mark reposted an article about the Canadian psychology professor Jordan Peterson, who has become something of a darling of the alt right and has also, alarmingly, become hugely popular among young white men in this country. In his post, Mark speculated about why Peterson has such a following. I'm paraphrasing paraphrasing badly now, but what I took away from what Mark was saying is that we don't have a clearly articulated idea of what abundant life looks like for white men in the progressive church, beyond asking them to repent of the sins of racism and sexism, which of course are the necessary starting points, but they're not much of a destination. The part we need to articulate or better, just embody with our own irrepressible lives, is where that leads. What does a vital, alive, white person look like if they aren't re-inscribing white supremacy? And what does a fully alive white man look like who isn't re-inscribing both white supremacy and patriarchy? I think today's gospel passage offers us an opportunity to talk about that with our congregations. The passage is part of Jesus' long speech in which he insists over and over that he is the bread of life. Here's today's excerpt. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. In this passage, as in so many, Jesus invokes this phrase, eternal life. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. I don't know, maybe the meaning of that phrase was easier to grasp in those days. As I said, I think the understanding of time was different. But today, we Christians are so conditioned by cultural Christianity, born in justifications for slavery and genocide, that we automatically think eternal life is something that happens after we die, that we just endure this life and get rewarded with eternal life later, even though that is not actually what the words mean. Eternal does not mean later, it means now and forever. This is so important that we get that what Jesus is promising is full aliveness now for everyone who agrees to it. In fact, my favorite translation of the words commonly translated as eternal life appears in the Jesus book, which is a translation of the New Testament into Hawaiian pigeon. In that translation, eternal life is rendered as the real kind of life, to the max, forever. I think there is incredible hunger among Americans today for the real kind of life, to the max, forever. In a society designed to put us to sleep, to numb us, to anesthetize us, in a society that is 98% marketing hype and 2% reality, in a society in which we are continually being rendered consumers rather than human beings, in a society in which becoming a part of the machinery of capitalism has replaced the possibility of making a meaningful contribution to communal thriving, in this kind of society... People are so hungry to come alive. And so when someone like Jordan Peterson comes along and offers people, and white men in particular, these mythic, heroic archetypes to step into, they are drawn to them in ways that condition them to support and further perpetuate patriarchy and white supremacy. Peterson encourages white men, for example, to stand up straight with their shoulders back, and become the heroes of their own lives in the same breath as he denies the existence of white privilege. His videos, books, and lectures are imperial bread, white supremacist patriarchal bread, dressed up as self-development and personal integrity. And so my question is whether in the face of Peterson and lots of others like him, we as the church can help people access real bread what Jesus calls true food and true drink, as an alternative to imperial bread—the bread of life in place of imperial bread. Here's a little bit of background information that is helpful in understanding how Jesus' bread is intended to be an alternative to imperial bread, quite literally. One of the ways that the Roman Empire maintained control over the masses of the people, was by offering periodic distributions of grain and olive oil, most of which of course had already been expropriated from the people through taxes and tributes, but nevertheless its distribution back to the people in times of need served to quell possible uprisings and riots among the starving masses. These bread distributions were a means of cultivating loyalty among Rome's subjects, while simultaneously keeping them dependent upon the very system that was exploiting them. Seems like this is the way of empires everywhere and in all times. You might recall that it was the memory of the meatpots of Egypt that tempted the ancient Israelites to return to slavery. I talked about that in the September 24th episode from 2017, called The Meat Pots of White Supremacy. Or, if you've seen Boots Riley's brilliant and inventive new movie, Sorry to Bother You, you might think about the three hots and a cot offered by Worry-Free Corporation. Worry-Free, if you haven't seen it, is Riley's fictional but all too plausible company that provides its workers with on-site lodging and three meals a day for life, and all they have to do is sign away their labor for life. And well, a few other things that I won't mention because they're spoilers, whether we're talking about Egypt or Rome or global capitalism, empire uses our need for basic sustenance to keep us cooperating. Jesus' feedings of the 5,000 are a counter to this imperial mechanism of control and a bid for competing loyalty to God's kingdom rather than Rome's. And yet, as scripture warns, we cannot live by bread alone, and white supremacy's seductions are not entirely, or even principally, material. Sure, Donald Trump's appeal is partly due to his promises to bring back jobs for working-class Americans, The people do need to eat, but I'm not alone in arguing that his appeal, and the appeal of white supremacy in general, goes beyond material promises. It goes into the territory of identity and meaning-making. It was W.E.B. Du Bois in the Black Reconstruction who first named the psychological wages of whiteness. Sure, poor white folks are exploited by capitalism, but at least they get to be white. White people, even those otherwise most degraded, get to experience status and pride as a result of being superior superior to people who are not only more degraded, but indeed placed in an entirely different and despised category. In this way, anti-black racism is a linchpin of capitalism, effectively preventing the solidarity that would be required to resist it. White supremacy gives white people a sense of significance, even when capitalism is otherwise stripping life of all meaning. And so in late-stage capitalism, where we find ourselves today, white people are fighting viciously to preserve it. So I find myself asking, can the church offer an alternative source of meaning, and one that doesn't reinscribe the very systems of white supremacy and patriarchy that we are trying to get free from? To me, it's notable that Jesus offers the people more than material bread. He offers instead his very flesh, which he claims is the doorway to that real kind of life, to the max, forever. His flesh. How are we to understand this? His insistence in this passage that we eat his flesh comes up against all kinds of taboos in our culture, as it would have in his. And yet he's relentless in driving home his point, Seven times he urges his disciples to eat his flesh and four times to drink his blood. What is this about? I have a friend who once confessed that their hope for their body when they die is that we will roast it like a pig on a spit and eat it. When they said this, we all laughed kind of nervously, but I don't think they were really joking. This friend is an extremely wise and loving person, so I've spent some time thinking about what this desire of theirs could be about. And I think it's about the desire for the deepest level of intimacy, becoming literally one flesh with other people, to be a part of sustaining others' lives even after we are gone. The desire to give oneself fully and wholly to the continuation of life And not just subsistence, but joyful, celebratory life around a pig spit. The real kind of life, to the max, forever. Now, I'm not suggesting that the church take up the practice of roasting and eating members when they die. But I do think the underlying impulse toward full intimacy, the impulse to give oneself wholly to the thriving of all life, I think that this is the living bread. It is the alternative meaning source that can fortify our people against the seductions of white supremacy. It forces us to get intimate with bodies, to feel big feelings, to be present with each other and the rest of the created world, to say, along with Maya Angelou, who is quoting and reappropriating the poet Terence, I am a human being. Nothing human is alien to me. It forces us to relinquish every meaning-making system that separates us in any way from any part of creation, which means relinquishing every single system of domination. White supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, they all strain and distort and prevent and destroy relationship. Because you see, the reality is that we are already eating each other's flesh whether we want to admit it or not. White supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, they are cannibalistic practices. Our whole food system, as it is now constituted, is bound up with violence, exploitation, and death, and specifically with the death of people of color here and around the world. From undocumented immigrants in this country toiling in pesticide-drenched fields... To the 207 mostly indigenous activists who were killed last year alone, trying to protect land from agribusiness, such as cattle ranching and coffee, banana, palm oil, and sugarcane plantations. We are dining on each other's flesh. We are drinking each other's blood. And it's not just food production. A friend of mine, who is an electrician, recently laid out for me the various ways that the production of electricity results in death for people of color around the world. You flip a switch, she said, and people die. It's that simple. We are already eating each other's flesh, and doing so with neither consciousness nor consent. And this is not some contemporary development. It is the reality of imperialism throughout time. In fact, I found several commentators who believe that Jesus was deliberately using shocking language about eating flesh and drinking blood in order to echo some of the most violent language of the Hebrew scriptures, in which, for example, The sword will devour till it is satisfied, till it has quenched its thirst with blood. That's Jeremiah 46.10. Or Deuteronomy 32.42, I will make my arrows drunk with blood, while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. The eating of flesh in this unconscious and brutal way is associated in Hebrew scripture with vultures and evildoers, and in later traditions with the devil himself, who is called a flesh eater, And the consuming of flesh with its blood is explicitly forbidden in Hebrew law. So Jesus is deliberately invoking shock tactics here. He is calling up these evil practices in order to force us to reckon with the reality of how we are living and to force us to pursue an alternative. What is that alternative? It's his offering up of his own flesh for our sustenance, and doing so voluntarily. Eat me, he cries, stop eating each other alive and eat me. Stop sacrificing each other and turn to me, follow me, and give yourself as true food for others. The Girardian commentators, of course, have a wealth of material you can draw from on the ways that human communities bind themselves together in unity by identifying and killing a scapegoat. There is no better explanation for the way that white supremacy provides meaning. Too often, churches have fallen prey to the same tendencies, constituting an identity called Christian, by identifying, excluding, and persecuting those who are not Christian. Jesus' plea to eat his flesh is a plea to stop that, because so long as the church continues to feed on imperial bread itself, so long as our churches are reifying an individualist framework, still mired in ego striving, still playing the game of bigger is better, we are replicating white supremacy. We have no moral ground to stand on and no nourishing bread to offer that can counter the seductions, the temptations of white supremacy. It is time we turn to the true food. The true food, which brings eternal life, is our participation in the ongoing process of self-giving. All of us giving our own flesh and blood, freely and voluntarily, in service to the flourishing of all life. It is the giving of ourselves in service to ending white supremacy and every form of domination, not as heroic individual practice, but as a humble part of our participation in the body of Christ that will save us. We come alive as we give ourselves in the service of others' lives. This is the real kind of life to the max forever. Amen. We are... As you move into action this week, I want to encourage you to think about how your church is mired in white supremacy and other systems of domination. One way to begin that process is to join Surge Faith's Community Safety for All campaign, which will provide you with support, resources, and coaching as you lead your church to rethink its relationship to racialized policing. You'll find a link to that campaign in the transcript. A new phase will be launching in September, so be sure to sign up soon. I'll also include a link to the local surge chapters around the country. Many of them are monitoring local white nationalist activity and planning responses, and we want to encourage you to find one near you and get involved on the ground. We also want to continue to uplift the people of Charlottesville, as they heal from the trauma of last year's Unite the Right rally and the ongoing effects of white supremacy and white nationalism. If you're able, please consider donating to the Charlottesville Community Resilience Fund in honor of all those who are impacted by white supremacist violence and oppression. You'll find a link in the transcript. Finally, check out a new Surge resource coming out of a collaboration with independent journalist Spencer Sunshine titled 40 Ways to Fight Nazis. Read through it. There's a link in the transcript. Find some comrades and take a first step together. Thank you for joining me today. Let us know what you think and how your actions are going by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. And be sure to join us next week when Rev. Ann Dunlap brings us a Liberation Word for August 26th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which includes references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the Freedom Movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney-Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thanks so much, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.